You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We are in the book of Micah, and we are going to be here over the next... Uh, several weeks, and I'll explain a little bit more of that to you in a moment. But but to start the e- the morning off, to, to kind of let you know where we're going, I want to tell you about something that took place. You already know all about it. April 14th of 1912, when the Titanic um, hit an iceberg, and then the next morning, so it hit the iceberg at 11.40 p.m. that night. The next morning, uh, the Titanic sank, split in half, sank into the bottom of the ocean, and most of the people drowned. In fact, if you um, are a Downton Abbey fan, that's how I mean, I've heard uh, this is how Downton Abbey, uh, Downton Abbey uh, opens. It, the whole show is right there that morning where they're reading the newspaper about the Titanic. Tell you a little bit about it, though, uh, that you might not have known. So there were 224 passengers and crew aboard. 1,500 died in the sinking. The ship carried at the day, in the day, some of the wealthiest people on the planet, as well as some common immigrants. It was leaving from Southampton. It was headed to New York. There were lots of people uh, in the bottom of that boat that were hoping to come to America as immigrants. The Titanic, in the day, was the most sophisticated and powerful and luxurious ocean liner in the world. A couple of things about it, too. It had a watertight compartment. It was the first one to have that. Remotely activated watertight doors. And um, at the same time, there were not enough lifeboats for the people that would have been on board because they believed the ship was unsinkable. In fact, in an interview beforehand, one of the crew said, hey, listen, the Titanic, that thing's unsinkable. Not even God himself could sink the Titanic. So you don't want to ever find yourself in a position saying something like that, I guess. The official report came out. The official report cited these things. Captain Smith, who was the captain, Edward Smith, had failed to take proper heed of the ice warnings. The lifeboats had not been properly filled or or manned. Um, And the collision was the direct result of steaming into a dangerous area uh, at too high a speed. But in the end, the conclusion of the report was this that the Titanic sinking was an act of God. It sank in 1912. Over the next year, from 1912 to 1913, over 100 songs were written about the Titanic, and the two main themes of the, of the songs written were the sadness of the event and the arrogance of humanity. The arrogance went something like this. Uh, one... Uh, writer reports. It was, uh, she had a, the story from her grandfather um, when they reopened the investigation of the Titanic. This was part of the, of the discovery. The Titanic had hit the iceberg at the most vulnerable point, she explains. But she could probably, my grandfather estimated, had gone on floating for a long time. But Ismay, he's the guy that owned the, uh, the, the Titanic and the company, But Ismay went up on the bridge and didn't want his massive investment to sink in the middle of the Atlantic uh, um, so that 
either sinking slowly or being tugged into port, that wouldn't have been great publicity. In fact, it would have been an absolute shame, he said. So he told the captain, go slow ahead. The Titanic was meant to be unsinkable. Had it not gone slow ahead and just stood there, many believe it wouldn't have sunk. And so they go on. It went. There were no bells, no sirens, and no general alarms. One of the other stories that came from it, there was a man, J.J. Astor, one of the wealthiest men on the planet, and um, felt no reaction, no alarm. In fact, his comment was, we're safer here on the Titanic than we would be in those smaller lifeboats. And Astor, just hours later, um, drowned. One of the things so compelling is the subtle storyline of so many people thoroughly enjoying themselves in comfort and safety and opulence, totally unaware of the impending doom. We might call this titanic peace. They all had this peace, this great security. We are on the unsinkable ship. And there was a peace that went with that. But they had no idea the impending doom. Listen, this relates this morning because Micah, the prophet, is going to be speaking to the, the word of the Lord that he sees. He's going to be delivering it to a nation that is on a Titanic, and they don't even know it. They are living with a Titanic peace, and Micah's going to say, look, that's not real peace. But I will tell you about real peace. There's this midst, there's, we'll see, there's a darkness, there's a fearfulness in Micah's day. But he's going to write to people about the great promise of the Messiah. In fact, in, in Micah chapter 5, we're going to see in a few weeks, he is actually going to tell us exactly where the Messiah is to be born. 700 years before Jesus shows up. Micah sees this vision from the Lord. So, one thing about it, that we're titling this series called The Gospel According to Micah. And I know what you'd be thinking. you say, well, wait a minute. The Gospel According to Micah. Micah's in the Old Testament, and I thought the Gospel was in the New Testament. I thought the Gospel was the life of Jesus, His, his life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. And you'd be absolutely right. That is the gospel. And at the same time, the New Testament writers continue to look back at the Old Testament and say, they knew all along about the gospel that was coming. Just listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, Paul, I'm, a, I'm Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he describes it this way, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We're going to have an opportunity over the next weeks to see the gospel unfold out of this book, Micah. I'll give you a quick outline. There are three sections to Micah. The first section is chapter 1 and 2, if you're taking notes. Second section is chapters 3 through 5. And the last section, third section, is chapter 6 through 7. There are three sections. They each begin with the word hear or listen. Micah 1 verse 2, Micah 3, verse 1, Micah 6, verse 1. And in those three sections, there are two cycles. Micah will begin with doom, and he's going to end with glory. He's going to begin with a judgment 
on the people of the day, and he's going to end with a hope for the future. And so that's the cycle. We're going to get to walk through that together. Now, here's how the book starts. It's going to give us a lot of information. We're going to unpack a few of these things, and then I want to, I want to tell you about uh, what we'll do over the next few weeks. The word of the Lord. This is Micah chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Micah, I need to give you a little history here. Micah is a prophet before the exile. You can't understand the book of Micah until you understand a little bit, unless you know a little bit of the landscape in which Micah's writing into. Micah is a prophet before the exile, which means he prophesied in the days before Israel, the the Assyrians come in, and later the Babylonians come in, and they take the people captive. He's writing before that. The purpose of Micah is he's going to declare judgment on the northern kingdom and provide a warning for the southern kingdom. Now let me tell you a little bit about that. The northern kingdom, when you read in Scripture, the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. Samaria is the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. This all happens after the kingdom has been divided. If you'll remember, the, king, the, the kingdom, the nation of Israel, is one united kingdom for a period of time. It begins under the leadership of King Saul, then it moves to King David, and then King Solomon. Those are three kings over a united empire. Solomon, at the end of his life, did some things that were really terrible at the end of his life. And God said that because of this, the kingdom is going to be divided. Solomon dies, and he has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam is not a great guy. And he assumes the leadership, and yet there's a guy named Jeroboam that says, No, we don't want you to be our leader. So he takes with him ten tribes. They wall themselves off, and they are now the northern kingdom known as Israel. And the southern kingdom is known as Judah. You with me so far? You can think of it this way. The northern kingdom, Israel, they had no good kings. The southern kingdom, Judah, had a few good kings here and there, but they were all from the line of David. The northern kingdom lasted about 200 years. It began with a coup, and it ends in 722 B.C. when Assyria, this rising nation from the north, will come down, they will seize all the land, and deport all of the people. And Micah is writing during the end of the northern kingdom's existence. Writing during the last 70 years, what they would have referred to as the golden years of the northern kingdom. If you were to take your Bibles, you wanted to go to 2 Kings, uh, you could look at chapters 15 and 16 and 17, and you see the, the fall, the collapse of this northern kingdom known as Israel. What, what, what happens 
is that it goes from the height of prosperity to slavery. That they go from the reign of their most successful king, he reigned for 41 years, to a soap opera of conspiracy, assassination, poverty, and ultimately slavery under the Assyrian king. And it's in these last days of the northern kingdom that Micah is in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom and he's writing this word from the Lord. The prosperity of the northern kingdom was crumbling and what it really was, it was crumbling from the inside. It all looked good on the outside but there was this moral decay happening on the inside and the southern kingdom, capital Jerusalem, is looking at the northern kingdom. They have a front row seat to its demise. And the southern kingdom would say things like, well, it serves them right. They're just a bunch of sinners. Yeah, that'll, uh, that'll never happen to us. We're God's true people. And that'll never happen to us. In fact, one writer said it this way. He said, the Lord waited for Israel's sin to ripen and rot before handing it over to the Assyrian army that stomped through the Pleasant land during the second half of the 8th century, casting one city after another into exile. But the prophets in the south, blinded by their own greed, saw no connection between Israel's sin and the rampaging army. But it is the true prophet, it is Micah, who saw the Lord marching above it all. You see, the problem with the southern kingdom is they, uh, they didn't think that could happen to them. The problem with the southern kingdom is they had this titanic peace. They, they, were, they were sailing across the Titanic. There was prosperity. There was luxury. There was comfort. And they had no idea. They could not put together that the iceberg was just around the corner. And so what happens is Micah's going to come on the scene and he's going to show up in Jerusalem. He's going to speak his message to the leadership of the southern kingdoms, the princes, the priests, the prophets. Here's what he says in Micah chapter 3, okay? Its heads, the, the princes, give judgment for a bride. Its priests teach for a price. Its, pro, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. The judges were, were judging according to who paid them the best. And the priests, they were teaching people only for what they could get out of it. And the prophets, they weren't really prophesying for God. What they were doing was whoever the highest bidder was, that was the message they were willing to proclaim. See, Israel, the, the northern, the southern part, the, the Judah part, the, where the capital was Jerusalem, had a serious problem. They were blinded by their comfort and their prosperity. They thought that as long as things were going well, we must be close to God. As long as our uh, borders are secure and our banks are full, and we have a job and unemployment's not too high, then we must be close 
to God. Well, look at what it says. It says, the word of the Lord came to Micah. The word of the Lord that came. It's, it's true. Listen, Micah served in a fearful time. He saw it more than anybody. He saw it when nobody saw it. But God does not cease to bring his word to his people. There's always hope, even in the darkest time. What, what's happening is God is coming and he's speaking. He's speaking grace, even when the message is judgment. Listen, the worst thing that we could ever experience would be the silence of God. Silence is far worse than judgment. And worse than silence is a preacher who preaches half a message. That's what they were doing in that day. Micah's contemporaries, those people that called themselves priests and called themselves prophets, they were assuring people of, uh, of God's love, and yet they were saying nothing about people's sins. In fact, they were saying things like, look, God doesn't count sin. He's not concerned with that. In fact, who can really say what sin is and isn't? I mean, who really can, right? It's all relative. What happens is, is that God shows up and speaks in the middle of that. He's going to reveal himself. The invisible God reveals himself to Micah and is going to be heard through his prophet. He identifies himself as Micah of Morasheth. Micah's name literally means, if you were taking notes, it means who, who is like God. You might say it this way. There's no one that compares to God. That's what's being declared every time Micah's name is called. The only thing Micah tells us about himself is where he is from. He's a contemporary with Isaiah. We know that. We know much more about Isaiah. All we know about Micah is where he's from. He is from this little rural town called Morasheth. It's about 25 miles from Jerusalem. See, for Micah to be identified from where, where he's from tells us a lot. Here's what it tells us. Micah was an outsider. See, if he wasn't, most people identified themselves by who their fathers were. Not Micah from Morasheth, but Micah, the son of so-and-so. But the reality is, Micah was a nobody from nowhere. That when he was in the presence of those who mattered, Micah was a nobody. He was a rural man from a nowhere place and had no status among his people. It reminds us of this, that listen, God can use whoever he wants. God can choose to reach whoever he wants any way he chooses. It's his call, not ours. And what God is doing is using this peasant man from nowhere to show up and to speak to the upper class of the religious nation. And it probably drove them to madness. But here's one of the things we do find out. If we were to take the time, we could go over to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, actually talks about Micah of Morasheth. He says about Micah of Morasheth that when no one would listen and everyone sought to discredit him, 
when all the king's advisors would say, man, you can't listen to that guy. King Hezekiah, Jeremiah tells us that Micah, the message that Micah gave, the word from the Lord, it changed his heart. God can choose and does choose to use whoever he wants. Well, it says, not only do we know what this is about, it's the word of the Lord. All that we have here is the word of the Lord. And that it came from Micah, this nobody from nowhere, but it came in the days, notice it says, of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the southern, the southern kingdom. And so while most of that time was a time of prosperity, the nation was deeply divided. The northern kingdom is nothing but wicked kings, the southern kingdom, they hadn't really done much better. And the main player on the day was this amassing nation and massing army called Assyria in the north. And it's tragic days. During Micah's lifetime, he's going to see the northern kingdom get decimated by Assyria. Micah served in a fearful time. And here's the reality. Immorality, Micah's going to address it. He's going to address the sins of the people, the sins of the leaders, the immorality of the day. It is a huge problem. But morality is not going to be Micah's solution. The first king that he mentions is Jotham. Jotham is the king of Judah. He is the son of a man named Uzziah. Uzziah had a long reign, but the end of Uzziah's life, his, his father Uzziah, uh, Uzziah got leprosy. And he's quarantined from the rest of the nation. And so Jotham, his son, assumes the daily responsibilities of his father. After his father dies, he becomes king at the age of 25. He rules for 16 years. He was a good king. Listen to the scripture's analysis of it. He was a good king. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The places of idolatry, of pagan worship. The people still, still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. But it also tells us he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. What Jotham did was continue what his father had begun, and that is to fortify the temple and to make Jerusalem look like a massive stronghold. So that if you were traveling and you came up to Jerusalem, you'd look and go, man, that city must be really powerful. That city must be doing really well. That nation is healthy and strong. And yet what we find is that the nation inside was crumbling. The chronicler tells us this, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. But the people still followed corrupt practices. He hadn't removed the high places. Jotham, like his father, was a builder. His father, Uzziah, had become a proud man, was struck with leprosy. Jotham, he continued to build the temple and the gates and fortified them. Outwardly, it was strong. Inwardly, it was wasting away. The people were corrupt. There was lots of activity in the name of God going on in Jerusalem. But the moral fabric of the nation was eroding. There was this political correctness that prevailed. The nation was strong. It seemed peaceful. It was prosperous. And if you meddled in people's 
affairs of their heart. You, know, you meddled in the affairs of people's hearts. That was bad form. I mean, look, life hadn't caught up with them yet. They had this titanic peace, but the iceberg was coming soon enough. Well, Jotham had a son named Ahaz, and when Jotham died, Ahaz, at the age of 20, took the kingship, began to rule, and he reigned for 16 years. Here's how the kings record his reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel of the north. He even burned his son as a sacrifice according to the despicable practices of the nations who drove out, who the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Ahaz was the product of his people. His, his, his father had followed the Lord. His father had done, by and large, what was right, but his father didn't lead anybody in the way that was right. And he didn't lead his son. In fact, 2 Kings tells the story of Ahaz. So Ahaz goes, he's traveling around. He's, he was kind of a worldly guy, wanted to see things. So he goes to Damascus, Damascus which is north of uh, the northern kingdom up in, up in Syria. And he goes to Damascus and he's walking around and he sees this altar, this pagan altar, an altar in which they sacrifice children. And he sees the altar and he says, oh man, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So what he does is he takes a piece of paper and he draws a picture of it and he has it sent to his high priest in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And he tells the high priest, I want you to make me one of these. So Ahaz travels back, high priest makes him an altar, he gets back, he sees the altar, he says, that's, the most, that's so beautiful and wonderful. And so he takes the altar of God and he puts it in a corner and he sets this altar, this pagan altar in which they sacrifice children, he set it in the middle of God's temple and began to make sacrifices and lead his people in those sacrifices. All the while, the prophets of the day are saying, hey, listen, um, it's okay, God, I mean, it's, that's not that big a deal. We're God's people. God's not going to do anything to us. We're his people. Well, Ahaz dies, and he has a son named Hezekiah. Good King Hezekiah. Hezekiah had seen the idolatry of his father. He'd also witnessed the fall of the northern kingdom. He saw that happen. He, he saw that nation decimated by Assyria. And it was a wake-up call for him. So what he does is he sets out to reform the nation. He, he condemned idolatry. He stopped the wicked worship. He called his people to humble themselves before God. He says, look, we're going to renew our covenant with God. We're going to start keeping the law. We're going to, we are going to shape things up around here. We are going to reform our society. We're going to get back 
the way things were. The problem is the things were never that way, were they? Hezekiah's desire to call his people back to covenant with God, uh, in many ways, it, it was successful. He, 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 in many ways, for a moment in time, righted the ship. And the judgment of his life is that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But there's more to the story. Hezekiah is the guy who got sick. Do you remember this? He got sick and on his deathbed, he asked that God would extend his life. And so God granted Hezekiah 15 more years. Let me say it this way. Be careful what you ask for because you just might get it. Had Hezekiah died when he's sick, it's been a great story. But the last 15 years, pride overwhelmed this man. And he made a ruin of his life. He, he squandered the rest of his life after that. What he did was he invited the Babylonians. He was so prideful about all that he had. He invited the Babylonians and said, Babylonians, um, do you guys want to see how much I have? How rich I am? And they said, absolutely we'd like to see that. And so they do. He reveals all that he has, and it is the beginning. It's what set the events in place that not long after that, years after that, the Babylonians come in, and they wipe out Judah. They destroy Jerusalem. They, they raise it to the ground. This is the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria is the capital of the north. Jerusalem is the capital of the south. Samaria is the capital of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. And what Micah is saying is that while these nations appear and begin with all their propaganda to tell the people how prosperous things are and how much peace they have. Internally they are decaying. And they have a huge problem. And Micah speaking to those leaders. I'll tell you over the next months, weeks, I guess, that we study this. Here's some observations. By the time we're done, Lord willing, it will be Thanksgiving. But by the time we're done with this series, we'll have had a presidential election in this country. We'll finish this, and likely, unless there are hanging chads or something like that, we'll know who the next president of this country is. And here's what I want you to know. I mean, God's Word is relevant and it's powerful and it's penetrating. Hebrews says it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It has the ability to divide us at the very core of who we are. It is relevant in Micah's day, as Micah is writing to the leaders of his people and the people they are leading, it is relevant then and it is relevant today. That God not only had, is not only the word of the Lord through Micah, 
to Samaria and Jerusalem. It's the word of the Lord to Micah for us. Micah's this great book because it gives us these great contrasts. It says that in the midst of imperfect leaders, you know what? We have a perfect leader who is coming. It's going to uncover and reveal this present corruption, but it also gives us hope for future celebration. Micah's going to say that, listen, in this cycle of doom and then glory, this is not the last word. This is not the end of the book. This is not the end. There is an end coming. And for God's people, it's glorious. Here's three observations, real quick. Three things I want us to take away this morning, and as we look through Micah, we'll see them. One, just because the nation is doing well doesn't mean you're close to God. And just because a nation is crumbling doesn't mean that you're far away. You know, it is easy to mistake current security and prosperity and things that go on and say, oh, well, we must be close to God. It does not mean that. But we might be tempted to say when things seem to be crumbling around us, we must be far away. That's not the truth either. For those that are believers in Christ, for those that are God's people, He is never far away. He is never absent. He never leaves. He never forsakes. You know, Micah saw, one writer said, through the smog of his own day, to a ruler in the distant horizon beyond. One that would come out of obscurity, not, of, not out of this position of power, but he would arise from the obscure town of Bethlehem. Even, even though eternity is really where he's from. He's going to arise, Micah tells us, and shepherd his flock with strength. He's going to faithfully represent God and act in his strength. He's, he's not going to serve himself, but he's going to serve his people. He would not be crooked. He is going to be impartial. He will not pervert the truth. He will tell the truth. The whole truth, nothing but the truth. And glorify God. He is not going to be deceitful and destructive. He will speak the true words of the everlasting Father. And the result of his ministry is going to be peace, not suffering. And yet at the same time, his rule, the rule of the one who is to come, will be the destruction of all the things that the people's false rulers had encouraged them to trust in. In horses and chariots and cities and strongholds and treaties and witchcrafts and imagery and idols and bank accounts and images. And he will bring all of that to destruction. See, the strength of God's people is never in those things.
See, just because a nation's doing well doesn't mean that you're close to God. Just because a nation's crumbling doesn't mean that you're far away. Here's the second thing I would say. When national security is threatened, and when I mean national security, I mean it in the both sense. I mean national security, but I also mean security in our nation. When our nation's is secure and we feel that security, when national security is threatened, personal lives are examined. I want you to hear me say how grateful I am that we live in a country that's free. I mean, we are free this morning to assemble around God's Word. We, we are truly blessed to live with the freedoms that we have. We're truly blessed to live with all the advantages of, 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 our, of our technology and, uh, and of medicine and, and of communication. It's, a, it's amazing grace that we live in this time in this place. Absolutely amazing grace. And at the same time, it can also be very dangerous. There's so much we take for granted. There's so much about our lives that's unexamined. That's how it was in Micah's day. And it was the threat of their national security, the threat of their way of life, the threat of their comforts and securities and, and what tomorrow might bring. That, that's what shook them awake. So the question for us is, well, where is our hope? Where, where is your hope? What is your hope in? What's the source of your true security? Listen, we, we, when our candidates are elected or the, the economy's good or our bank accounts are in the black or there's a moral majority and everything's safe for the family, it's easy to forget that our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in the stability or sustainability of our lifestyle. It's not. Listen, we know this, right? We know it. Today is the 15-year anniversary of 9-11. We know it. A nation flocked to places just like this. to pray to the God of the universe and to examine ourselves. And the problem is it didn't last very long. As the people of God, we have to remember always our hope is not on this side of the horizon. Our hope is in what is to come. It's beyond the horizon of what we can see, but we know to be true. Might I suggest in the coming months that when you feel anger, when you feel fear, and uncertainty and insecurity, that you'd examine what's behind that. Might I suggest that you take a moment and turn it off, whatever it is, and ask these questions. Do, do, do I believe, okay, do I believe, okay, do I believe that God is sovereign? Do, do I trust that He is still on the throne? Do, do I believe His perfect will is being accomplished? Do I have a longing? Not for some event 
or election or circumstance, but a longing to see his son return. See, as believers, we can be some of the most fearful and weird people on this planet. I'll give you one example. You want to know? I'll say, I'm going to say two letters and a number. Y2K. You know who the weirdest people on the planet were? Believers. We wrote books to each other and hoarded food and we were going to live out in the... I mean, do you remember this? Why would we do that? Instead of being a people who fix our eyes on the gloom, we are called to be people who gaze at the glory of the one who is to come. We have nothing to fear. Finally, here's my last point. Immorality is the problem, in a sense. But morality is not the solution. What I mean is, listen, sin and immorality and rebellion and wickedness, it is the cancer of humanity. It is our legacy. And it has been since Genesis chapter 3. And the answer that humanity has always tried to give to that is reform. The answer has always been to try to seek reform through morality. So we have legislation that passes laws. And our hope is that somehow we will curtail the human heart, that we could somehow pass a law or hang a sign that would change people's hearts. Listen, God gave us government for the good of all the people, but the government will not change a heart. We all know the corruption that still lies at the heart of a nation. And more than that, we know the corruption that lies at the heart of the individuals in that nation. Reform is not the answer. Morality is not the solution. Do you hear me? It's not. It is not a matter of us just getting our act together, shaping up and flying right. That's not the answer. We need a Savior. Jesus did not step out of eternity into humanity, take on human flesh. He did not become one of us so that we could see the glory of God, so that we would, at the end of the day, be better versions of ourselves. He came to die our death. He came to step into our place. He came to have all of our sin and rebellion poured on Him. All of the wrath of God poured out on Him. And to die for us. Not that we, so we would be better versions of ourselves, but that so we would enter that death with Him and be raised to new life. He took our place so we could take His place.
We need a savior. We need a shepherd. We need a king. One who will lead us not in mere morality, but will lead us in righteousness. I'll close with this. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as the propitiation by His blood, meaning He took our sin, He endured God's wrath, He took our place. And that is to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He came because he is the judge. And the only right thing for the judge to do is to condemn the sin of humanity. And at the same time, he stepped in and took our place. He was both just and the justifier. The debt we owed, he paid. And the life that we long for, the eternal life reconciled to the God who created us, is in turn handed and given to us by Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? There's no principality of power or thing present or thing to come that will separate you from the love of God. These are timeless truths. And what we're going to see in this book of Micah, written 700 years before Jesus came, and 2,700 years before this moment here. And it's as relevant today as it was then. I pray these truths will challenge us, Compel us to rethink how we think. And that we would be reacquainted with the real peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for the word that you gave to Micah. The word of the Lord that he saw and then wrote down this Nobody from nowhere that stepped into the courts in Jerusalem and proclaimed your truth. Father, even though it seemed nobody was listening. Father, I pray we would hear. I pray we would listen. Father, I pray that in these times that seem fearful and insecure, we don't know what's Next, and we don't know how it's going to turn out, and it's easy for us to get all um, uh, in a panic. Father, I pray you would draw us to the comfort and peace of your Son. I pray, Father, we would 
claim, promise after promise after promise, that our eyes would not be fixed on circumstance. Father, they'd be fixed upon our Savior. And you would kindle again in our hearts the longing for His return. Father, we, we love you. We, we seek to honor you. We pray that we have and we've exalted the name of your Son, Jesus, to your glory. And so, Father, that's how we pray. In Jesus' name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.